What do you call a group of snakes? A sea? A clump? Maybe just a string of profanities? I guess it depends on who you are and where you are, but one of the most common terms is a den. I grew up around garter snakes, but only in the sense that I sometimes would find the skin they'd shed or spot the flash of one darting away in the backyard. And this might sound silly, but I'd never actually seen a snake among snakes before. And for a while, I'd imagined them to be kind of secretive, solitary creatures, slithering solo through most of their lives. Obviously, I hadn't heard about the dens of Narciss. I've got pictures of me as a baby being wheeled around in a stroller um, at this den, and there's just these spaghetti balls of snakes all over the trail. And as a kid, you just feel like you're in a wonderland, right? I'm Abby Peralt, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, more than 70,000 snakes in one place. Plus, the community that's formed around these slithering dens. After this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. The red-sided garter snake can be found way up north, in the interlake region of Manitoba. This is a cold place to live, especially if you're a cold-blooded reptile. So these garter snakes have to find warm pockets of their environment to survive. There are people in the Interlake who, whose basements fill with snakes every spring because the, the foundations around houses allow the animals down into the ground to overwinter. That's Doug Colligate, a retired wildlife biologist who runs NatureNorth.com, a website about wildlife in Manitoba. And the reason why these snakes can live there, despite pretty harsh winters, is because there are all of these natural sinkholes not too dissimilar to, say, an unsuspecting person's basement, that allow these snakes to get beneath the frost line. The underlying geology is um, what's called a karst formation, limestone, that was crushed and broken up by the thousand-meter-thick glaciers that depressed the land around here. So when it starts to get cold, the snakes slip down into these few sinkholes where they'll spend the entire winter underground together sometimes with 10 
thousand snakes in a single den. And uh, so you get these enormous populations that develop in some of these sinkholes that have evolved in there. Um, these sites are used traditionally by sort of the same group of snakes year after year. Year after year, red-sided garter snakes make this annual migration, sometimes traveling up to 12, 15 miles just to reach that specific sinkhole they're going to spend the winter in. And if you're lucky and you have to be driving through an area like that, um, you'll just see massive amounts of these snakes um, crossing the road on, on one stretch. That's Neil Balchin, a graduate student and snake scholar at the University of Northern Colorado. He's also the voice you heard at the beginning of this episode, the one who remembers being taken to the snake dens when he was a kid. I don't want to sell this over dramatically, maybe, but I mean, if you get out on a good day, uh, the road is, is honestly moving. Neil grew up close to the dens of Narciss, and when he went to the University of Manitoba, he actually decided to study these red-sided garter snakes. Specifically, he looked at their migration and how the snakes make their way to these dens each year. So a lot of evidence indicates that scent is going to be huge, right? But when you're dealing with snakes like these garter snakes that are maybe moving, you know, 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers at most, um, there's got to be a little bit more coming into play than scent, right? So perhaps things like magnetism uh, has been suggested. There's been a little bit of evidence that snakes maybe are looking at things like stars and things in the sky that might point to where a den might be. So we have a good sense of what is happening right before they go under With that said, we know virtually nothing about what's happening during the winter. It's a big secret, essentially, what happens when they do go down. They're at a really low metabolic rate. Um, They're cold. They're quite slowed down. You know, they're probably drinking water, and they probably are interacting with each other as well. And then around late April or early May, it warms up a bit, the ground starts to thaw, and the snakes begin to pour out of the dens. So our female snakes want one thing. And that's to eat. Um, They want to get away from that den site, eat and pack on as much kind of resource as they can during this active period. The male snakes are interested in an entirely different thing, and that's reproduction. Um, These males want one thing, and that's to win the chance to mate with a female. And because there's so many snakes, we see this reproductive battle. So many male snakes. Remember those spaghetti balls of snakes? They're also known as mating balls, and they usually form because all of these smaller male snakes are trying to mate with one larger female snake at the center. But that's not always what's happening. These snakes have a really good sense of smell. So this process is really about following pheromones. And there's some fluidity when it comes to who's emitting what pheromones. And if I'm maybe a late male, maybe I've you know, joined the party a little bit late and I come out cold and everyone else around me is warm, I can actually trick other male snakes into warming me up. I come out into the sun and then I emit a female pheromone. And now all of a sudden I've tricked other male snakes around me into thinking I'm a female. And they're going to surround me and they're going to battle and you know, I'm going to be buried in male snakes. Now, that's probably a little bit overwhelming to this poor male who did this, um, but he's going to warm up way quicker than he would have if he just sat in the sun. It's very clever. Yeah, it's a a smart idea, I think, and I'm, I'm glad it works out for them, definitely. These days, people don't really mess with the snakes when they come out of these dens, aside from snake spectators who pick them up. But that wasn't always the case. Here's Doug again. 
yeah, there's there's plenty of records of you know dens being deliberately destroyed because uh, snakes were pouring out of them. For a while, Doug says the snakes were commercially harvested here in the Interlake region. They they used to be used uh, large scale in uh, sort of the biological dissection trade. They would take tens of thousands of them out of the the dens. It's not something that's widely sort of publicized about this about the snake dens. You know the original history of them and how they were exploited, but that is the history. Eventually, there were regulations put in place to limit this. But there was another problem. There was a highway that cut across the snake's migratory path. Thousands and thousands of garter snakes were getting hit by cars each year. It was a serious issue for the snakes and also for people. Doug said the roads could become slick with smushed snakes to the extent that it actually made driving conditions dangerous. This led to the formation of something called the Narciss Snake Mortality Advisory Group. It was made up of some local officials, some scientists, and a few snake-loving volunteers. They started by putting up signs, urging drivers to slow down. And then they came up with a brilliant idea. Snunnels. Snunnels. The snake tunnels. <laughs> um, with, with fences that sort of guide them into that uh, tunnel for crossing the road. So imagine a snake. It's slithering along, heading toward the road until it hits a mesh fence. I mean, the snakes don't instinctively want to climb over things. They want to go around them. So they, they're funneled into the, the snake tunnels, which are basically small culverts under the road that have a, a sort of a wire mesh over them, big enough holes for the snakes to get through, but not other critters. So there's no skunks in there just waiting for snakes to come along. These snunnels seem to work really well. But I certainly know in recent years when I've been there, there's very few snakes smushed on the road. The Narciss Snake Mortality Advisory Group was able to reduce snake mortality by around 75%. And that's, again, because of the snunnels. Just had to say it one more time. These 70,000 or so snakes and the dens that sustain them year after year are magnificent. And maybe that alone makes them worth protecting. So does the fact that, like just about everything else in the natural world, they're just a tiny part of something bigger. So when you think about salmon running up a stream to breed, right? Those salmon play a tremendous role in that ecosystem. So every time, you know, you see a redwood tree, you can thank a salmon for kind of feeding that tree. These snakes work the same way. They're moving that nutrient up the line. So we have maybe 10,000 snakes in an area. If we get rid of them, we've now wiped out a food source for things like foxes and uh, birds of prey and things like that. And we're killing a really important link in this ecosystem. In this ecosystem and many others, humans have a complicated history sharing space with snakes. And in parts of the world where there are venomous snakes, an aversion to those venomous snakes makes complete sense and is actually really important. But in other places, like places where you're interacting with harmless garter snakes, it might be more of a cultural thing. I don't think it comes as much of a surprise that, you know, snakes are really maligned by people generally. They're not really right off the bat looking like a cuddly animal. They can't really smile at you. Um, but I think the, the message I always try to drive home 
is that they're really just doing their best, right? All a snake wants to do is live. And at Narcissus, you can kind of see that cultural thing shifting in real time. People seeing these snakes just doing their best. People like Doug and Neil studying them. People kind of rallying around them and erecting fences and signs and snunnels for them. I know that in the local area, in the Narcissus Interlake area, people love these snakes. I mean, they're, they're a part of the community. These snakes have become their own sort of draw. Each spring, thousands of people show up to watch them emerge from the earth and spaghetti ball their way across the horizon. The dens are currently closed, but when it's safe to visit them again, make sure you go on a warm, sunny day during late April, early May, or catch fall migration in September. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Dylan Thuris, Sarah Wyman, John Delore, and Peter Clowney. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was mixed by Luz Fleming. I'm Abby Peralt. Thanks for joining. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.